This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, if Dave Lister's head is in that box, I'm going to be very upset. Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show where we're putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gip, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi. And this week, a science fiction legend who I'm vaguely aware of and never read anything by. <laughs> uh, he, he may have, uh, you know, written this episode, so you've, in a way, now read something from him, kind yeah. of. I read it by watching it as a TV show. You, you, you've listened to the audiobook version. <laughs> that is usually what I do. So yeah, with, with the cartoon uh, exterior to it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, as much as they move, it may as well be. Yes. <laughs> We're going to awkwardly stand here while our lips kind of move. Like even the cheapest anime that's ever been produced. Because this is 70s animation. Yes. <laughs> So this episode is called The Slaver Weapon. Now, uh, I suspect uh, our initial sort of uh, feelings about what that means is uh, maybe a little off from what the episode actually presents, but only kind of, I guess. Only kind of. It's a bit weird. It's not, yeah, it's not like, I was expecting something like Fallout 3's Neuralizer Slave Collar side quest. So that would be a little awkward, yeah. But no, it's just a, it's a, um. It's just just the name of a species, apparently, which is weird. We'll get into it, but I don't. It's okay, sure. Maybe it's like a a, a translation issue. It's like they call themselves the. Um, what does that actually like mean? Well, it means they're in charge. Oh, so they're like the slave masters. Oh gosh, <laughs> it might be one of those kind of like um, um, situations where the the first English speaker who had to translate it got the name from someone who didn't like them. This happened oh, yes. with several different uh, older Native American tribes that have since had to be renamed because the original name that everyone was using means ancient hated enemy. The, the, the old school version of, uh, so, so who are those people over there? Oh, they're, they're, they're just some assholes. Don't worry about it. Yeah, basically. <laughs> name your rival in the Pokemon game. <laughs> uh, the... Uh... I, I guess there is, uh, you know, the the other interpretation would be uh, that, you know, it is sort of just a, well, we've got the universal translator and it is very literal sometimes about how that sort of comes through. And so th these people might have had a proper name, but we don't know how to pronounce it because we've never actually met them and haven't heard it actually spoken. So we can figure out from the uh, the text here that it's going to be roughly translated as this word. Hmm. Well, the this Universal Translator doesn't seem to be particularly literal most of the time. But. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, the Universal Translator is magic anyway, so, you know. Its rules can uh, change and vary as needed. <laughs> That's true. The Translator is very magic. Not as magic as the Transporters, but close. <laughs> so, this episode, now that we've uh, talked about the name for way too long... <laughs> <laughs> was written by Larry Niven, who is a incredibly well-known sci-fi author, won all of the science fiction author awards multiple times. Yeah, just like a whole pile of them probably in a closet somewhere. 
yeah, the best this award, the best that award, the best short story award, just been around. Uh, most well-known for his Known Space series, which is a big old connected universe with all the same kind of species and things hanging about. Um, the most famous story that people have probably heard of from that series is uh, the Ring World. So uh, a big uh, structure that's basically a ring that goes around a star, and you got this thing sort of rotating slightly, but mainly they do the whole day-night uh, cycle through these little like shades you got up in the middle, and it's like just really huge. Yeah, it's like uh, one three hundred sixtieth of a Dyson sphere. Yes. <laughs> which really is enough to basically house everybody. Yeah, I oh my everybody. god. That's, that, that we're not getting into it again, but the, <laughs> the things I was reading about this book were like, this is how a planet will deal with the inevitable rise of overpopulation. It's like, my god, the freaking population bomb again. Again and again and again. Hmm. Are we ever going to get past uh, uh, that sort of thinking? Apparently not. I'm still seeing it used in arguments, but anyway... Uh, <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh, I, I was seeing something about uh, that uh, that that Duke of whatever guy who recently passed away. I was uh, even on, in on that sort of thinking. It's like jeepers, like seriously, people just keeps cropping up. We've completely disproved it multiple times. Go listen to yes. our <laughs> other episode for that. I forget what that yes. one was called. The one where Kirk's on the empty ship. <laughs> yes, uh, the, uh, the, the the Mark of Gideon. Yeah, there we go. Marco there Gideon. We go. That We go into Population Bomb a lot in Mark of Gideon. If this was YouTube, a thingy would be popping up on the screen. You might be watching it on YouTube and wondering where the thingy is. I'm lazy. <laughs> That's where the thingy is. Okay. <laughs> this is a... I don't mean this in a mean way. Because this is, this is an adaptation of a short story called The Soft Weapon. But I feel like adaptation is a very generous wording here. Yeah, for what I've uh, been able to figure out, the uh, the the adaptation is you change some of the names and the species for your protagonists, and that's kind of it. Yeah, instead of the three random aliens, one of whom I guess was also a main character in Ring World and some other uh, whatever known space stories. Oh, this is the pu puppeteer guy, right? Yeah. Um. You have changed the main characters to the three from the Enterprise, which, to give credit, it is a good three. It's not Kirk, McCoy, Spock. Mm -hmm. It's Spock, Sulu, and Yura. Yeah. So you get some other people a chance to do stuff, which is great. Yeah, and uh, and for like for once, Yura is like, I'm going to get captured, but I'm going to get out of being captured first. So hooray. <laughs> Before not doing that, but yes, <laughs> we'll see. All right. The reason I'm not in much of a hurry here, um, I don't, I have no clue. This episode took me about 15 minutes to write, and I don't know how long it's going to take to read, and I don't know what there is to say about it. <laughs> 15 minutes for a 25 minute episode. Let's hope we get at least five minutes of discussion. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's go. As Mario would say. Yeah, so do we have any guest stars? Not that I could find. No, uh, it's, it's all just James Doohan. Yeah, it's James Doohan, James Doohan, James Doohan, James Doohan, and James Doohan. Yes. <laughs> and Michelle Barrett. She gets to be a computer. Again. 
So, Spock, Sulu, and Uhura, the dream team that we all really wanted. Let's mm -hmm. be honest. If they were the main three, this show would have been completely different. Indeed. I was like, oh, yeah, there's the captain here, but he's just kind of doing his own thing over here. And we're going to focus on these uh, sort of uh, middle upper tier uh, sort of uh, uh, ranked folks here. We're just going to go on wacky adventures while, you know, Kirk commands the ship. They are on a shuttlecraft going to a nearby starbase carrying an incredibly rare, possibly powerful artifact that they just got from the planet Kazin. Yeah, so they're coming from the planet Kazin. This is important, folks. Because it kind of raises some confusing questions later. Oh, it does. <laughs> so what they have is something called a slaver stasis box. This is going to take a lot of expositioning. <laughs> yes. So like the first five minutes is just the uh, exposition of this thing. It really is. Yeah. The entire thing is like, here's my backstory. This is Star Trek fan fiction. This episode is literally Star Trek fan fiction. <laughs> so we got our characters. We got our MacGuffin. <laughs> so, these boxes are artifacts of an ancient civilization known as the Slavers, who were the masters of all intelligent life in the galaxy about a billion or so years ago. So, uh, they apparently dominated all and uh, enslaved everyone they, f they ran across and uh, ran the uh, galaxy for their own benefit and uh, was very imperialism and all that. And, um, and then someone didn't like that and, and, then they, and then they got killed or something, I guess. Yeah, at one point, a rebellion started a massive intergalactic war that wiped out not only the slavers, but everyone that they had subjugated to the point that intelligent life in the galaxy had to evolve again. Hmm. Well, I guess that would kind of explain to a degree why there's suddenly all these species popping up with, in the, in the grand scheme of things, fairly similar uh, tech levels uh, you know, and uh, you know, capabilities. Uh, kind of roughly at the same time uh, throughout various parts of the galaxy mm -hmm. without, uh, you know, there being some weirdly massive disparities with, you know, with a few exceptions, of course. So these box things that they have are super long-term storage devices that hold whatever they have inside of them in literal time suspension. So even after a billion years, anything inside was put in there yesterday. So it's like a deep freeze, but with time magic. So the Federation has found several of these things that had ancient technologies that they used as the basis for a lot of their modern technology, including stuff like gravity plating. So I guess that means they found one of those boxes pretty early on in the Star Trek canon there, like pre-Enterprise. Crazy. So this is, uh, <laughs> this gets to me a little, because... I was watching this and, and like being the nerd I am, I'm like, they did a Star Wars. Yep. <laughs> Everyone's the same technological level because there was an ancient civilization that got to a technological level. And then everyone else has just been finding the old artifacts and using that technology as the basis for theirs. So no one actually had to advance or invent anything. Uh, a galaxy of scavengers. I can see why people forget the forget the animated series exists because this being in here like 
undermines basically everything that people love about this show a human human intuition and oh my god it inspired me to be a scientist and invent cell phones or whatever the heck you're on about this week but yeah no it was literally all just ancient artifacts ancient alien artifacts that we found <laughs> this is like saying well we didn't invent skyscrapers we found an ancient alien artifact with like skyscraper tech in it <laughs> and then we studied it and reproduced it and so our skyscrapers aren't necessarily as good, but they, they, they go sideways instead. So we put our own twist on it. Yeah, but, you know, we, given what we know, what we know about ancient aliens from History Channel, all ancient alien civilizations built everything out of granite. Yes. <laughs> they were the world's best stonemasons, and they taught all of the stonemasonry because that's what aliens with interstellar travel do is worry about Earth stonemasonry. Well, if they know how to build things with stone, they'll for sure be able to master, you know, you know, you know, space-time warping here within a few decades, right? Well, they don't tell you about these stasis boxes. It's actually not technology. It's very carefully carved rocks that just manipulate the flow of space-time <laughs> around the box. So it's like techno feng shui. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's one that I haven't seen people do. That sounds like a fun random sci-fi concept is you didn't actually develop like super powered technology or anything you you developed a way to very carefully build your stuff in such a structural way that it manipulates the flow of space-time around it uh, i think the closest i've ever seen to that would probably be uh, some stuff from uh, outlaw star but it also has you know other sort of things going on at the same time so See, it would kind of be like the way that there's very little actual, like, blue pigmentation in most animals. It's just a reflected light thing with structural elements in the animal's feathers or wings or whatever. We're going to manipulate the, uh, the, the rotation of our uh, photons here, and we're going to have some fun with it. So anyway, <laughs> so the shuttle carrying Superbox passes by a planet that makes the box start to grow, and an energy tail thing points down to the planet, which indicates the presence of another super box. So you mean they're, uh, are, they're attracted to each other? Maybe if you bring them into close contact, they'll combine and become, become even bigger? Yeah, this Except is the origin of box. the Minecraft chest. You put them <laughs> next to each other and they stick together and become a double chest. Awesome. We're going to have our, ourselves a double chest of uh, cobblestone pretty soon. Apparently, the only thing that can ever detect these boxes is other ones of these boxes. That's very limiting. And now they've found a super rare second box. Well, it was convenient. We were just passing by this place. Yeah. And a super rare second box is worth the chance of landing the planet and investigating. They bring their box to the planet in order to use it to locate the other box beneath the ice, and they prepare to dig through the ice just as Sulu is stunned in the back, followed shortly by Spock and Ahura. Oh no, Sulu! Somebody's attacking Sulu! They awaken in what Spock identifies as a Kazenti spacecraft. Despite the fact that the Kazenti are not allowed to have phasers. Well, uh, I guess it's kind of, uh, I guess they've just sort of bucked the trend on that one there. Um, so there's like some sort of space treaty because Kazenti kept losing wars versus humanity. And... Now they're just going to ignore it, and I guess they're going to go to war again soon. Yeah, essentially. The crew are standing on what they identify as a police web, which is a literal spider web looking thing on the floor that, when it's turned on, prevents them from being able to move. 
been stuck in the web, folks. Watch out for giant cat spiders, I guess. Yeah, several large cats in pink spacesuits enter the room. Spock identifies a scruffy-looking Kazenti in the group as a mind reader, so be careful. He advises Sulu that they're probably going to target him for the mind reading because the Kazenti think that Spock and Ahura are inferior beings, Ahura for being a woman and Spock for being an herbivore. Now, uh, they do talk a little bit about the uh, the, the psychic mind reader uh, Kazenti there being just kind of like completely on edge and, you know, you know, neurotic and things like that, which I guess maybe implies that they're not used to actually, they never quite get used to entering other people's minds and even like, Members of their own species are very alien to them. It's going to be kind of an interesting concept. Yeah, they don't like it. They don't really use it for anything, but kind of an interesting <laughs> concept. Spock advises Ahura to play dumb because Kazenti women are mindless animals. Great. And if she pretends to be dumb and stupid, they might just play along and ignore her. Well, uh, if that ends up working, then uh, convenient, but still really awkward. So the Kazenti, led by someone named Chuff Captain. I'm going to chuff at that one. He's chuffed. <laughs> it's just, they call him Chuffed Captain every time. What is a chuffed? I don't know. I know it's British slang, but I don't know what it is or where it came from. Larry Nindivan, if you're listening, uh, let us know, all right? They're all pleased that their trap works to draw another box because they have an empty box and they've been using it to try to bait someone with a real box. Wait, wait a moment. You guys, they, they picked this up from your home world. Why, why are you here? <laughs> yeah, maybe they're not allowed to archaeology on their home world either. They retort with the fact that Kazenti have lost four entire wars with humanity, so they can't be that, that hot. Now, it's, I think Sulu specifically states that like over 200 years ago was the last one, which does kind of play havoc with some of the timeline as far as Star Trek goes. But, you know, animated series and we don't have a yep. very set canon at all. No, nope, so. not really at all. At, at all at this point. Not until yeah. the movies do we have anything resembling anything. <laughs> uh, alternatively, we could just say uh, things like, oh, Sulu doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> now, the Kazanti don't seem to care because they're much more interested in eating them. Than listening to any of them. Well, uh, maybe this is your opportunity to uh, just make it the Uhura Sulu show then. Sorry, Spock. So the idea that Zenti have here is they're going to open the box and hope to find a super ancient weapon. Well, uh, good luck with that. Uh, like they did mention that one of the uh, the, bo uh, the previous boxes did contain a grenade with a pin pulled, so uh, you might. So they open the box and. There's a picture of a green alien dude in there. Might be a slaver. And they're like, ooh, that could be cool because it's the only picture we've ever found of these things. There's some meat. Sure. And there's a weird-looking green gun. Hmm. Well, the, to call it a gun at this phase is maybe a, a, a little generous. But, yeah, it's, kinda, it's a green handheld device of some sort. Yeah. And they declare it to be the end of humanity. Ha-ha. Hooray. Wait, moment. I'm... Never mind. <laughs> they go outside to the snow, where Chuff Captain has arranged the crew in the police net in front of him to test his new weapon on. Well, um, start shooting away, I guess. Yeah, he tries to fire it at them. Uh, nothing happens. He changes a toggle switch on the side of the gun grip, which makes the gun completely transform into a totally new shape. 
with the same handle. Yeah, same handle, and then it just turns into a new shape. This one also doesn't really do anything. Uh, he tries another one, it's just a telescope. He tries another one, it turns into a jetpack thing that sends him flying around Whee. in a comic fashion. That's not how you do it, Star-Lord. He uh, knocks Ahura out of the net and then also knocks out their psychic, so they have to take him to the medical thingy. Ahura makes a run for it, and one of them goes like, Earth women are intelligent, you idiot, and then they shoot her. Mm. Um, Ahura, um, I don't think the heels are very good for uh, running uh, away from aliens trying to shoot her. Definitely not in the snow. But then again, this is 70 Star Trek. I guess it's to be expected that you have to wear heels if you're a lady. Yeah. What else would they wear? I mean, think. You want them to be barefoot? No. <laughs> well, I'm there you thinking go. Thinking like combat boots. <laughs> what else then would a could, woman you know, wear? Then you could kick some ass. So, Chuffed Captain tries one last setting. This one's some sort of energy dampener that turns the entire energy web thing off. Quick, Jesus! This time, Sulu, her, and Spock all make a run for it. Hooray! Maybe together we'll be more successful. Spock makes a quick detour to kick Chuffed Captain and grab the gun. Ahura gets shot immediately and recaptured, but Sulu and Spock manage to escape. Well, uh, I guess we've got to go on a rescue mission. Uh, maybe we should like hide this gun somewhere so they don't find it. That, that would be an idea. <laughs> <laughs> They're upset to find Ahura missing, but they know that Kazenti won't leave or call for reinforcements because Spock has injured the captain and now he is honor-bound to kill Spock without help from anybody. Hmm. Well, uh, I guess it's good that Spock knows uh, all these various things about the Kazenti there uh, as far as their honor code system works. Um, it's kind of awkward to have to sort of explain it to Sulu, who apparently already knows a bit about these guys. So Spock and Sulu spend some time experimenting with the gun before the Kazenti ship arrive. Uh, the Kazentis try to bait them into one-on-one -on -one personal combat because he's been injured and hasn't dealt with his wound and he won't until Spock agrees to fight him. And they both go, no, thank you. Bye. <laughs> uh, you know, Spock's like, yeah, uh, Sulu, uh, go ahead and answer his call there. And by the way, he kicked my ass. So um, let's not. <laughs> Sulu's like, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm going to go with the nope. <laughs> So in their experimenting, they decide that if this weapon does have a super cool gun on it, it must be hidden somewhere. So they go back to the null setting, which seemed to do nothing, and twist the top, and that suddenly makes it into a gun. Dun dun dun! Super gun! Activate! Flip it. Twist it. Pop it! <laughs> so Sulu decides to test the gun. It's apparently a total matter-to-energy converter that goes off like an atomic bomb. I'm, uh, my, my electrodes, uh, where, how are you conserving your quantum numbers here? And this turns out to be a really bad idea because the shock wave from the explosion knocks them both out. Yes, just like, oh, um, if we were any close to that, we'd probably be exploded. But in the meantime, we're going to be, uh, you know, buffeted around until we get thrown around until we're uh, unconscious. So, uh. This still sucks, but at least you're going to live, probably. Sulu does drop the gun, which causes it to reset to factory specs. So that's good. That's good. Sulu and Spock are recaptured immediately. The Kazenti have experimented and found a voice interface on the gun. So it's got a computer in there. Hello, computer. And Spock's like, oh my god, a talking computer that small. <laughs> this is amazing. The Kazenti asks the computer how to use its most powerful setting, and it tells them something different than what Sulu and Spock found. 
Hmm. Well, that's suspicious. The Kazenti leave to test it, uh, leaving the crew tied up on the floor. Uh, Spock is very unconcerned, because, you know, if you were building a gun with a computer in there for an ancient superpower weapon, and someone just asked you out of nowhere how to use the most destructive setting, what would you tell it to do? Um, my most destructive setting is to put me up your butt. <laughs> yep. <laughs> 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 but given that this is a 70s cartoon show and uh, we don't have that kind of language even allowed here, uh, we're going to have a self-destruct mechanism instead. So the Kassenti go outside to test their new weapon. It backfires, destroying itself and killing all of them. The explosion also sets the crew free. Well, that's convenient. They go outside to find nothing but a crater where the Kassenti have been. Smok's glad the weapon's gone because it was far too dangerous. Uh, Uhura asks about the Kazenti superstition that weapons can be haunted by their original owners and knows that they won't be getting over that superstition anytime soon because <laughs> they're dead. Yes. Because uh, the Kazenti, there was a moment earlier where the Kazenti were like, <gasps> talking computer, and they're like backing up slightly. It's like, they're like they're obviously fe- you know, in fear of this thing. And then they, it's like, oh, well, we got to calm down. Okay, <laughs> let's talk to it. <laughs> Maybe you should have gone with your fear. This whole episode's a bit interestingly one note i would say a little bit it's very much a here are a series of events that kind of happen and um that's kind of it there's not really a moral dilemma other than how can we navigate these kazinti without getting ourselves killed or our friends killed and are we going to let them have it or not and that Answer is very quickly resolved. And no, it's probably good if we don't have these people that really want to go and fight everybody, to, you know, giving them a super powerful weapon. So, let, so let's not do that. Okay. And that's our moral conundrums for this week. You know, I, could, I could see this being an interesting sci-fi short story, which of course it originally was. I didn't track it down to no. read it before this, but I could see it being that kind of like Asimov-y, we just have to figure out how this computer functions and then you know, work through all the complicated computer stuff to be able to, like, ask it the right thing or not ask it the right thing. And since they communicated with it wrong and it still thinks there's a war on and is loyal to its original builders, of course, it's going to think of them as an enemy and they should have known that because that's how computers function. Uh, I could see a lot of that being useful if you did it in writing where you had internal dialogue and thinking through stuff like that. And, well, if I tell it this way, this thing, the computer might interpret it this way and do this other thing. Uh, But they this is TV. Yeah. So we can't really easily have that sort of internal structure going on here when we're trying to be very clear to the audience. This is exactly what our characters are thinking. And we can only really express that via having them talk to each other. And they can't really do that when the bad guys are present, unless they're whispering. And even still, they're going to be leaving out some important details that they'll fill in later. Even though they do some of that, but yeah. that's neither here nor there <laughs> particularly. Um, yes. <laughs> the, the whole episode feels like sort of an excuse to introduce this weird ancient civilization backstory thing. And to just shoehorn the Kazenti in here. Uh, now... You know, having the Kazinti in here uh, would, at a certain level, sort of imply that the whole known space universe slash continuity is now part of the Star Trek canon. But I would actually make an argument that that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. 
No, just because one species is the same. Well, they changed a lot of the backstory stuff. Indeed. Because from what I understand, the like ancient civilization and whatever that they got the box from in the short story were different. They changed them to the slavers to simplify it for the Star Trek stuff. It was a different civilization. So really, it's just the one species that happens to be the same. Which I guess is sort of like a light version of a crossover to a degree where it's, you know, it's like, okay, so we can have these two books. One of them is, uh, let's say, Midsummer's Night's Dream. And this other one is The Great Gatsby. And they both contain these things called humans in them. And just a coincidence that they are both containing the same species, even though they're the, the materials and the, even the universe that they're invo- uh, sort of focusing on are completely different. Uh, you know, different eras, different uh, sort of emphasis, different levels of fey creatures, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so you can very much have this sort of, you know, this thing. And that's something we do all the time because we have our most of our literature is very human centric uh, for, for one degree or another. And so no one really kind of thinks about this. But you know, if you just replace human with anything else, you can kind of do the same thing. Uh, so like, oh, yes, the, these one aliens can be showing up here or, or in this book as well. Or you could have elves or orcs or goblins or gnomes or anything like that. You know, you know, you could have, you know, even, you know, whole fantasy settings without humans. And, you know, a lot of the sort of same species that pops up in other ones. And sure, there might be details about them that are different. But they are they are still at the core of that same basic idea that you're using with you know either the same or similar name being applied. And it doesn't mean that Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones or and um you know, what's uh, what's another one? Uh, Harry Potter are all in the same universe. That doesn't necessarily really make any sense, even though there are some common elements. They even have like existing cat aliens. It's not like cat alien is that unusual of a thing. They had one before this. Yes. Indeed. Uh, for all we know, this could be, uh, you know, uh, also crossover with, I don't know, the Traveler universe. I don't know the aliens in that one. but Yeah, or it's not Guardians of the Galaxy. It's the other spinoff from the X-Men with Cyclops' dad. The Corsairs, I think, <laughs> had a cat alien. That's a long way to go for that reference that I don't remember the name of. So. You know, um, I guess technically one of my settings has cat aliens, but... Which I also kind of pulled the, the trick where it's sort of a crossover, but not really in some ways. Because uh, sometimes I like mentions like, oh, yeah, and this planet exists in both of these different sci-fi universes. But where the, uh, how their society, if any, has sort of evolved is actually radically different. In one case, uh, they became a interplanetary uh, uh, nation state and the others... They didn't get past uh, you know the nuclear age because they decided to destroy themselves instead, uh, and so this planet still exists in both these universes. And the aliens that lived or lived there still existed, just they just had different outcomes. Uh, and so maybe Star Trek isn't a full crossover with known space, but sort of a weird parallel universe thing going on instead. They're already doing so many parallel universe things with Star Trek. <laughs> Well, that just means that uh, next time uh, we go to the mirror universe, we can go to somebody else's mirror universe. That would be interesting. <laughs> like, oh no, it's the like, mirror universe. What's this? What's this Babylon Five space station thing? 
<laughs> it's evil Babylon 5's time. <laughs> I've been racking my brain. There's not a ton to talk about morally with this thing. Like the alien, there's a there's an underlying coveting power narrative that you know the Federation wants to find these boxes and learn and better everything. Like they're not explicitly looking for weaponry, so they're willing to be careful and work through stuff and think about it. And the Kazenti are evil and want nothing but power and technology for the purposes of power and that leads them to recklessly ignore potential dangers and wind up killing themselves with their newly gotten power which is a pretty common story trope the heroes can use power safely the villains will abuse it and end up inevitably destroying themselves which is exactly what happens in this episode so um i guess i can sort of take a step back and maybe think all right, so if you have both of these sort of very ideologically divergent sort of civilizations in close proximity, enough that they've had multiple wars so far, this does sort of, I guess, beg the question of how, what is their general mode of interaction at this point? You know, are they sort of like, is the Gazinti space empire, whatever, like a, uh, a, a tributary state to the Federation where they're sort of being kept under a giant thumb to make sure they don't cause problems or are they fully independent but being restricted by the treaties just so that the federation can ignore them uh or is there some other relationship here that they are you know you know you know this is very clearly a, you know an attempt at a treaty violation but they're doing all this sort of plausible deniability sort of stuff you know the, does the uh, the Kazinti, uh believe that they're in a position to challenge the federation and its uh, power at this point or will be able to do so soon if they get lucky with their scheme here? Um, or is there some other dynamic going on? Maybe the Klingons are putting them up to this. Like, yeah, if you can figure out some way to plausibly uh, you know, pull off an attack on the Federation, we'll be with you behind you 100% here. Sort of like a, a private little war situation where it's like, yeah, we can't technically just give you all these weapons. We need to have some excuse to make it seem like you came up with them yourself. And if you find an actual super weapon, maybe you can't really, you know, duplicate it. You know, people have beat back engineered all this stuff uh, previously already uh, for other uh, wondrous advances. So we'll just, you can claim that happened and it's all good, right? Oh, the, um, the stated impetus here in the episode, it didn't fit in nicely. It was kind of a side thingy. But they do state at one point that they are endorsed by their government, and if they pull this off, they'll have the power to challenge the Federation, and if they don't, this crew is disposable. So they're, uh, you know, plausible deniability if things go south. Well, you could have a, like, the, the general political spectrum here seems to be, or the political power situation, does seem to be that the Federation, or at least some group of, like, Federation and possibly allies, has a treaty from the old war that demilitarized the Kazenti in the same way that we have now Germany and Japan are still not supposed to have a particularly large standing military from World War II. Germany wasn't supposed to from World War I. Didn't work out super well. Yeah. <laughs> this, is a, this is a pretty common way of dealing with these things on Earth. And in, in fact, in the 70s, it would have been a pretty... The 70s was a time not too far away from the last time they had to invoke this somewhere. So it's sort of like, mm, we should maybe keep an eye on this sort of situation. And so these, this concept is very fresh in people's minds to a degree. Where I guess today it's not necessarily quite there anymore. Uh, you know, sometimes people mention like, yeah, Japan's trying to 
do this one particular thing to tweak their military slightly, but it's running up, you know, you know, you know, up to arguments uh, of those like, is this a treaty violation or is this a legitimate uh, part of our defense measures here that are actually legitimate? And uh, we're going to have a big debate about it and see what happens. Well, the geopolitical climate has changed so much since the 70s. Now, everyone that we were even recently at war with as the United States or other um, larger military powers, especially like Western, Western and like European powers, uh, everyone's just become a global trade network at this point. So yeah, technically Japan's not allowed to have a very large military, but like they're one of our largest trading partners. So even if they did start developing a military, what would anyone do with it? Yeah, it's like, a, well, we got an army now. Now what? <laughs> Uh, well, we could try to saber rattle versus North Korea, but we already kind of do that because they keep doing it to us and we got to like at least make it look like we don't care or care enough to like contain them. So this isn't going to really change the status quo though. Also, <laughs> what's the point? So it's probably something like that. I, the one thing that I, one thing that I keep thinking about with this particular story, the weapon's kind of a cool idea. Especially since they say, like, it's probably like a spy weapon at one point. They're so, like, it's, it's small, it's handheld, it changes shape. You can, like, make it all these different things, and it's easy to conceal. Uh, now, you know, because you've got the telescope setting, you know, it's, now this is obviously not a weapon. you got the one that makes Sulu kind of feel a vibration, I guess. Maybe that's like a long-distance uh, microphone, maybe. Heck if I know. Uh, it, it's very much a... It kind of does a little bit of everything sort of thing. Yeah, who knows what any of this stuff is or what it's for, but, you know, it's it's neat. It's a neat idea. The nuclear bomb setting. <laughs> kind of <laughs> incongruous. This is like a, you need a telescope and a little communication device and a travel doodah. Okay, um, if it switched to some sort of like one-on-one -on -one personal defense weapon, something like that, that would make sense. Yeah, there's a light laser setting, but it's very, like, you know, even basic phasers are way better, so. Why do you need a nuclear bomb on your Swiss army knife? <laughs> well, uh, in in case you need to blow up a moon, what, what, why else would you need that? Yeah, this whole thing is, like, it's obviously, like, the, the, the power of this, you know, matter-to-energy converter beam thing is obviously meant to be used not in the atmosphere of a planet at least not one you're on yes <laughs> uh so maybe it's like you set up you, know, you you put your agent like on a spaceship of uh one of your rivals or uh you know uh, rebel ships or whatever and have them kind of sneak around for a while and give you intel um but if they ever are a part of a large fleet you go out uh, on the on the the surface of the ship there, and just start shooting at all the other ships, and then make them explode. So like that's neither here nor there. I just thought it was interesting. <laughs> I just didn't like the, the only time they ever show them using this thing. They shoot it at a mountain about a mile away, and it knocks both of them out. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so it does kind of raise a lot of questions about what is the utility of the Stelio. Kind of. Secret agents that those people have back a billion years ago. Jeepers. Also, why would a super powerful monster slaver thing 
need a secret agent if you already ruled basically the entire galaxy. So that's why I think this uh, device maybe wasn't actually one of the slavers' uh, devices. Possibly one of the rebels' ones. Yeah, which is why they needed a picture of the slaver in there. This is your target. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so uh, you could try feeding him some, uh, some, some tainted meat, which I think they mentioned was like, had something wrong with it so they wouldn't eat it. Uh, and uh, if that fails, then just blow everything up. Yeah, just turn him into a nuke. Yes. It's fine. Yes. Now, possibly the slavers were like, had some sort of super thick natural armor, so converting them into an energy blast is the only way to actually take one out. Yeah, so like maybe the laser setting was to, I need to cut through this door or... Maybe there's, uh, you know, a, a, you know, one of the uh, enslaved folks that are, you know, actually be a good guard so you can take them out with that. But the, the antimatter sort of like super beam there. Um, yeah, that's what you're going to have to actually use on the dude. I did kind of enjoy the little arc they had with Sulu and Spock because the whole thing is like Spock realizes he made a mistake by investigating this thing and it led them into this trap. And he's like, well... Hopefully there's nothing useful in that box. Otherwise, like this, this was either like fine and maybe like we sacrificed ourselves, but it's not going to threaten the Federation at large or there's something super powerful in there and then we're all screwed. So they get the gun out and he's like, oh, no, an alien weapon. And then they start using it. And every single thing they use is like, oh, well, that's no better than our technology or that's worse than our technology. <laughs> Guess no harm done. And then they pull out the nuke button and they both go, oh, Hmm. Oh, maybe this was a bad. <laughs> that was awkward. Bad of oh, yes. <laughs> so yeah, I, I did like that uh, sort of uh, follow through with the plot there. Uh, I do appreciate uh, times when our characters are doing things that they seem quite reasonable, um, but end up turning out maybe not so for the best, or being surprised by things they should they couldn't have really anticipated, like traps or meat in a box. So uh, do I need to uh, explain the uh, the comment about David Lister and the, the the cold open? Possibly. Why was his head in a box? Is is this like a Disney <laughs> well, it's thing? It's a box. Well, uh, Dave Lister is the character from uh, Red Dwarf who is put in stasis for three million years. But this is a bit smaller than a stasis chamber. So it's like, all right, so I need something else that's funny that is about this size. I know. I'll also reference Wayne's World. Oh, you got a double reference. <laughs> it's a twofer. Two points. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I believe the line was uh, when uh, uh, Wayne's sort of kind of girlfriend ex person there was like, yeah, here's a gift for you. And he's like, if this is the head of the box, I'm going to be very upset. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> back to the episode. Yeah, well, maybe back to the episode. Do we actually have anything else? Because... The gun incongruity, which, like, I don't like nitpicking. Sometimes it's just fun. Don't take me seriously. I've gotten some comments of, like, oh, my God, how could he have picked on this? I was like, I don't know, because it's funny. <laughs> sometimes Star Trek can be hilarious. Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes it's not. And sometimes it's just sort of a, well, that was weird. And then you're like, well, this kind of makes sense when you're trying to write an episode. You only have so much time to put this together. But still, it just raises so many questions and there's so many alternative ways you could have gone, gone through this. This show is intended for entertainment purposes only. Any learning you do here is entirely coincidental. <laughs> and if uh, you learn something good, hooray. If not, uh, whoops. 
<laughs> All right. Did you have anything other in particular? Because I'm running out of. Uh, well, there was my little comment about uh, the, the electrons and the, the quantum numbers, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Because this thing can't physically function. Yes. So uh, there is in quantum mechanics and uh, particle physics in general, uh, the we've fairly well established that under you know the circumstances of which we can observe things so far, as far as actual like experiments, things you got a various collection of quantum numbers, which I'll explain what those are that uh, in a moment that are generally conserved in some fashion or another. Uh, so what are what do I mean by these quantum numbers? Uh, some of these things are like, is this an electron? If it is, you give it a one. If it's not, you don't give it a number at all. If it's an anti-electron, you give it a minus one. Uh, this is a very simplification sort of thing here. So so do if you're actually taking particle physics, just read your book instead. But uh, <laughs> but uh, you, know, you know, this could also have things with like uh, le- electron neutrinos also have an electron number of, you know, uh, one or if it's anti-neutrino, uh, uh, a minus uh, one in that case. And so when you have, you know, your general particle interaction, things like that, uh, you, know, you could have, you know, an interaction that creates an electron, but, but by necessity will also create an anti-electron. And as such, you're going to be, you know, you so you got, say, a proton uh, running into this other particle here, and this is part of the, the, the shower particles that's being produced. And so you get you know a situation where okay so we got a you know effectively these you know zero electron number at the start and zero at the at the end so because we got a plus one and now a minus one where we only had zero plus zero uh, and so these quantum numbers are being conserved throughout the interactions and so if you're just going to be converting a whole bunch of matter to uh, energy, like straight up, like not producing any particles, no electrons, no neutrinos, uh, no, you know, protons, even free gluons somehow, uh, you're going to run into a problem that you're going to have to destroy some of those quantum numbers because those electrons and those atoms you're now baking into energy directly, the, the, those quantum numbers need to kind of go somewhere. So... Uh, this does imply that in the Star Trek universe, either they're wrong about what they're seeing, uh, because obviously they can't see, you know, converting everything to, you know, photons plus a whole bunch of neutrinos or something like that. Uh, that you know, so that's one option. Or alternatively, uh, these uh, this ancient civilization has figured out a way to basically destroy quantum numbers. Maybe it like pulls all of the spare quantum into itself to power the gun, and that's how that works. Or maybe it's just a gun that's full of quantum number already. And so you, all right, we're gonna we're gonna fill you. Uh, we gotta have this much uh, color charges here. We're good there, and uh, we got some minus one electrons that aren't actually electrons, and uh, and there we go. We're good to go. All right, well, let's blow up a mountain. This thing's now just called the quantum gun. Yes, <laughs> which uh, I guess, given the number of times in later Star Trek that. They just kind of solve problems via quantum. Uh, I guess that kind of works. I mean, they do just start shoving the word quantum onto the beginning of things in Next Generation at some point. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so the quantum uh, slavery weapon, that's what we've got here. Not just the slavery weapon. So if I understood you even like vaguely correctly, 
this thing punches like would have just punched a hole in empty big void space in the universe that can't get filled with anything as we understand physics yeah, to a degree it it basically requires the math not to work anymore so if you break math that effectively um first off impressive uh but also so how did you pull that off that implies a lot of very complicated things be violatable that as far as our observations of the universe are generally not, which might imply that that little gun there is also has some sort of subspace giant particle accelerator involved too. It could. I mean, if you're dealing with the quantum doodahs, maybe it just ships everything off to another universe. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. If you teleport things and you're fine. <laughs> oh, maybe that's the trick. It uh, starts beaming things away, but uh, you know it's, it like replaces it with the uh, the inside of a star or something like that. Oh, that'd be fun! It know. just transports <laughs> that bit into the middle of the nearest star, and then transports a bit of the middle of the nearest star over here. Yeah, though it just kind of explodes. <laughs> Have some superheated plasma. Yeah, ah, uh, that does remind me a little bit of a uh, one bit from um, Farscape, actually, ah. uh, where it's like. We're going to be opening a wormhole here in today's episode, and um, we're going to be using it to destroy a ship. So we're going to open a wormhole right in front of these guys that connects to the surface of a star. Have fun! (laughs) Like, hmm, they're now on fire. Hmm, they're exploding. All right. (laughs) Not bad. Sounds fun. (laughs) You know, uh, on a side, I do uh, really do appreciate sort of the the end bit of uh, the Peacekeeper Wars there. (laughs) Never gotten that far in Farscape. Uh, it's it's a an interesting example of how uh mad is actually quite mad <laughs> but anyway <laughs> we're not really dealing with that uh, concept today uh nope. i think we've drifted quite a bit here. yeah we have and we dealt with the physics the plot incongruities the general tropiness of the uh. storyline so i guess all that's left now is the galaxy's favorite game show Hey everybody, welcome back to the game show portion of the show. I hope all you cool cats are having a good time there. I certainly am. I got uh, th- uh, three prizes to hand out this week because we got our various contestants knocking up all s- knocking out all sorts of uh, crazy points here. Um, well, okay, there weren't weren't crazy high point numbers uh, numbers today, but we still got winners all the same. So let's start handing out some prizes. Our first one is the crossover episode prize, which goes to Kazinti for dropping in from the known space universe only to cause trouble in both terms of plot and continuity. What do they win, Gapwin? The Kazenti win a giant ball of space yarn. That'll keep them out of everyone's hair for a good long time. Yeah, at least until Star Trek Picard. Because they're, they're briefly mentioned there. Anyway... <laughs> Our second prize, which goes, uh, which is the uh, sufficiently advanced aliens prize, goes to the slavers for their wondrous stasis boxers and their Presto Changeo secret agent gear. I guess. Uh, what do they win, Gepwin? Robots. Stop with the enslaving people. You have wondrous post-scarcity super space age magic technology. You don't need to subjugate anyone anymore. If you make some robots, and everybody loves robots. But maybe they don't for some reason. 
Oh no, we're asking even more questions. We should probably stop doing that. Moving on. Oh, our third and final prize for today is the Whoops Prize, which goes to Sulu for causing a massive matter annihilating explosion of some sort while filling with the monkey gun. That had it been any closer, probably would have killed them all. What does he win, Capwin? Sulu wins what they probably have at the academy, which is super weapon safety courses. Don't point it at anything that you don't want to turn into an equivalent amount of energy. Be it your friend, your house, your starship, or that mountain nearby. Hmm. Sulu, uh, yeah, it's, pro- it's probably time to take some uh, a refresher course at the very least. Weapon safety training in the future must be super intense. Like this will <laughs> blow up a planet. Don't put it at your point it at your head, and most certainly don't point it at your uh, groin. There, uh, stop doing that. Hmm. So, uh, Sulu, get get back into class and uh, maybe take the rest of the with you. Because uh, NT2, they, they, they seem to be a little behind as far as the whole safety of your, your weapons attack there is concerned. Anywho, uh, Gepwin, feel free to take us away uh, to that special place. Wait, that, sorry, I'm having a Guns N' Roses flashback because I need to fill some more time. As thank you everyone for joining us here on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Next episode has a pretty familiar sort of title. Also, Kirk's back. Yeah, Kirk's back. Oh, well. Thought we got rid of him. <laughs> oh, we're on a space shuttle, uh, a shuttle mission uh, away, and you got some trouble. And uh, didn't have to put up the Kirk for a little bit. But, ah, uh, he's back. I guess we got to go deal with the cosmic breaking whatevers now. Again. <laughs> I, I believe this is another episode where people are disappearing, though. Yeah. Always happens. That's why he's back. (laughs) Always happens. All right. uh, Before you go get yourself abducted or sent to another uh, pocket universe again, uh, uh, have some of your uh, people like go to uh, retrieve this box for us real quick. (laughs) Then go get yourself vanished. So what's what was that? Now I can't remember what that one was called. The one with the uh, green alien thing. Uh, Oh, the uh, how the Gorgon uh, thing. Infinite Vulcan. The Gorgon thing. Oh, uh, and the children shall lead. No, that was the other. <laughs> <laughs> but he was called the Gorgon. Yeah, he might have. He was called the Gorgon. But there was that other, like, green Medusa thing. Oh, the Medusoid or whatever it was called. Oh, yeah. The Medusans, where uh, if you look at it, you, you lose your mind yeah. or something. Ah, is there no? T- is there in truth no beauty? Okay. This one is Eye of the Beholder, which is, like, sort of a similar concept which was what was confusing me with the titles. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, the, the beauty is implied in this the case. The Eye of though. the Beholder, which is also a pretty famous D&D module. Yeah. Wait a moment. Are they going to be fighting Beholders? I hope not. Well, that's an interesting question. How does the Beholder's anti-magic field work with Star Trek technology? Well, we've already established the Universal Translator and the Transporters are magic. Oh. So those won't work. The- um, so what else do they still got? To the internet. <laughs> <laughs> what Star Trek technologies are actually just magic? <laughs> I, I guess the the gravity plating is too. Mm. Yeah, it, it always seems to still be working when they lose all their power. Self sustaining, <laughs> unless they turn it off they deliberately. Yeah, that's why. That's why in my uh, Stellar Renaissance um, uh, situation, 
actually have the uh, gravity plating uh, sort of equivalent be actually just subatomic particles that are decaying at a sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, an ideal rate, causing, uh, you know, gravitational mini waves that interfere in a uh, useful fashion. Uh, and that way, if, you know, you lose power, these things are being, still being contained by permanent magnets. So you don't really have to worry about it until they ran out of particles. So, so slowly the gravity will fade, but you're, you're okay otherwise. From what I'm reading here, this episode, The Eye of the Beholder, is a very particularly common sci-fi trope that we haven't hit in Star Trek yet. So I'm not going to spoil it, but look forward to that next time. Oh, my outro might spoil yeah, it slightly. that's fine. People can guess. Okay. <laughs> guess in the comments what we're going to be dealing with next week. It's a super common trope. We just haven't hit it in Star Trek yet. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, something tells me it's all happening at the zoo. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>